Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. You can find out about my background and probably more than you need to know at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, uh, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Seth Powell. Uh, Seth is a PhD candidate at Harvard University, and he's a founder of Yogic Studies. If you haven't heard of that, that's good because you will hear a lot about that on, on this podcast. And he happens to also be a fellow podcast host. He is host of the Yogic Studies podcast. Really excited to have you on the program today, Seth, and welcome. Thanks Thanks so much, Raj. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for the invite. Yeah, so, you know, maybe a good place to start is you can tell us a bit about uh, your research. You're working on a fascinating, understudied yogic text. Um, why don't you tell us a bit about that? What are you working on at Harvard? Sure. Um, well, first of all, yeah, it's a pleasure to be on this podcast. I'm a longtime listener, and uh, I feel a little bit um, anxious about being on the New Books podcast because I, I certainly don't have a book to my name yet and uh, still PhD candidate at Harvard working on the dissertation. Um, but an Can exciting I say a, opportunity. A quick, I'll say a quick thing towards that to reframe that so this is now uh new books and new developments in, in Hindu studies more or less and it actually um it actually in my view it's impressive that somebody who hasn't finished their doctorate is already having so much impact in what we can broadly call Hindu studies and certainly yoga studies uh so that is why Seth is on the program please continue well well, well thanks for that Raj um uh, yeah, excited to be a part of a conversation about about new directions. Um, yeah, so I'm happy to talk a little bit about some of my research and uh, the the larger work that I'm doing with yogic studies uh, and in this, I think, somewhat burgeoning field of yoga studies. Um, so the work that I'm doing uh, at Harvard for my dissertation uh, is a a critical edition and study of a what I think is an early 15th century Sanskrit text from South India. It's a text called the Shiva Yoga Pradipika, the lamp on Shiva Yoga. And it's a unique text for a number of reasons. It kind of brings together uh, a variety of different systems of yoga uh, framed within an ashtanga or an eight-limbed model. So for those familiar with Patanjali's classic model uh, from the Yoga Sutra. Um, This text uh, frames its yoga within a similar structure, but then it sort of implots different uh, types of yogas within those traditional eight angas. So it brings together this uh, classic set of four yogas, mantra, laya, hatha, and raja yoga, and uh, a variety of techniques of asana, pranayama, mudras, and so forth. But it, 
What's particularly unique about this Shaiva yoga text is that it does all of this within the framework and the service of uh, ritual puja to Shiva, to the deity. So it kind of takes Ashtanga yoga, Hatha yoga, Raja yoga, and then it envelopes them within this broader devotional and ritual framework. So the project, um, you know, at one level is very philological. I'm working on a critical edition based on a number of unpublished manuscripts that I've retrieved from archives in India. And from that edition and translation, doing this larger study of the, the text within its historical context, we might say, trying to understand um, its particular religious flavor and identity, its doctrine and praxis. And the other thing that's perhaps unique about this yoga text um, compared with others from a similar time period uh, around the 15th century is that not only is it a Shaiva text, but we can also identify its author, whose name is Chenna Sada Shiva Yogi. This uh, Chenna Sada Shiva Yogi is uh, a Vira Shaiva, a particular uh, bhakti or devotional tradition uh, that is uniquely geographically uh, located in South India, and particularly in Karnataka, as well as Andhra Pradesh is probably where the text was written sometime in the early 15th century. So that should be quite exciting research. Uh, one a quick question that comes to mind about this tradition, of course, I'm fairly ignorant of this text, which is why your work will be quite useful. Um, is this at all um, a tantric or tantra-influenced tradition? That's a good question and something you know that I... I'm teasing out in the dissertation. Um, I would say yes and no. Um, of course, it always depends on what we mean by tantra. Uh, so there are what I would call tantric or agamic influences in this text, uh, philosophically speaking, uh, as well as just some of the technical terminology. Um, within this particular South Indian Virashaiva context, I think what we now know is that during this, this time, uh, really roughly 14th through 16th century in South India, there were a number of Virashaiva theologians, often affiliated with different matas or institutes, um, monasteries, if you like, in South India, who were composing theological and philosophical treatises, kind of codifying the doctrine and ritual praxis of the tradition. And those Virashaiva theologians are drawing on a variety of different textual and Sanskritic traditions, um, in particular, Agamic or Tantric Shaivism, as well as uh, Vedanta. And so there's a bit of a synthesis going on in the background there that then is also um, being brought together with the physical methods and techniques of yoga, and then also, at the same time, all kind of brought under this rubric of bhakti and, and puja. So there are definitely tantric influences, um, as well as Vedanta, um, and then broader currents of yoga that are kind of all coming together in a text like this. So one of the things I'm doing in the project is trying to map out those different influences, try to assess you know, where the author is drawing on 
previously established tradition? And then what are some of the ways he is uniquely innovating and perhaps adding something new, you know, to the development of yoga and bhakti and, and all of these things? Sounds like a fascinating project and certainly, um, certainly vital for this, um, what I believe, uh, what I believe is correctly a burgeoning interest in, uh, yogic studies as, as a subdiscipline. Um, I mean, through which we learn that pre-modern yoga, um, well, we learn a lot about pre-modern yoga, but we also learn that there are some things that are very, very different. And there are some things that may have been around forever, such as the yoga strap. <laughs> you have <laughs> you have a, 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 a fascinating article on the yoga strap. Um, how long has the yoga strap been around, Seth? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking. It's one of my favorite um, uh, anecdotal uh, topics. If you're ever at a dinner party and uh, need need a good story, you know, or or good question to get the conversation going, you can ask this question, and hopefully now you'll you'll have an answer after this. How old is the yoga strap? Um, as it turns out, the yoga strap is just about as old as the discipline of yoga itself. I mean, it's roughly two thousand years old. Uh, in Sanskrit texts and textual traditions, the term is the yoga pakta. And basically, as far back as we have evidence of ascetics and yogis in Sanskrit and vernacular uh, literary materials, uh, we have references to ascetics and yogis strapping themselves in with these cloth straps, uh, typically around their waist. Um, and we also... Uh, I would say even earlier than the extant textual record we have, we have sculptural and material evidence of the yoga strap. So going back to Sanchi, really turn of the uh, common era, so 2,000 years ago, you can see ascetic figures who are uh, carved onto these reliefs um, up in uh, northern central India. And... Uh, they're, they're quite fascinating to look at these material reliefs of the ways in which ascetics are depicted uh, sitting in front of small uh, thatched huts surrounded by animals in the forests. Some of these are actually narrative reliefs from Jataka tales, from the uh, you know, early stories of the Buddha's past lives. And there are many, many ascetic uh, yogin figures. And one of their most common accoutrements is the yoga strap. And so, yeah, you mentioned uh, this, this short article, which hopefully one day I can turn into a larger peer-reviewed piece. But one of my fun little side projects has been amassing an archive of 2,000-year, pretty continuous history of the development and the use of the yoga patta or the yoga strap. And it's something that is not only used by human ascetics and yogins, but interestingly becomes a common way of marking a god, a deity, or a bodhisattva, uh, or some sort of divine being as a yogi. So listeners might be familiar with uh, Narasimha, you know, this um, half-man, half-lion form of Vishnu. And uh, there's a very famous image of Narasimha, particularly at Hampi, 
Vijayanagara, this huge, larger-than-life monolithic stone where he's carved and he's got the yoga strap around him. It must be 20 feet wide. It's perhaps the largest yoga strap in the world. Uh, So not only human figures and uh, human yogis and ascetics, but also the gods uh, are also marked in their yoga forms with the yoga strap. And so what I've found and what I've argued is that the yoga strap actually becomes one of these key markers, even visually, to indicate yogic prowess and attainment, siddhi, if you like, uh, and really kind of demarcates uh, an ascetic or yogin practitioner, both in the visual material as well as textual record. And of course, like anything, like yoga itself, the history of the yoga strap has evolved and changed over, over time. And interestingly enough, as, as yoga and these physical and mental disciplines evolved in Tibet, the yoga strap, I think, took on quite a new life in Tibet as well. And, and, and still today, I think that's where it's most prominent in this more Indic or traditional context. And you get these incredibly elaborate, decorated, silk yoga straps that uh, serious yogis, you know, in Tibet um, and those regions still to this day still employ uh, as a part of their discipline. And the the idea really here is that perhaps unlike today where the yoga strap has all kinds of creative, therapeutic and dynamic uses to support a postural yoga practice, really the traditional idea was to support a seated Uh, meditation posture and to use the strap to literally fix or harness one into that position to be able to hold it for uh, an incredibly long period of time. So for those of you who wish to be perceived as a god among men, just brandish about your yoga strap and tell the story uh, of what you learned today. Uh, Talking about seated postures, the sort of um, archetypal classic uh, Shaiva even image, yogic image of someone's seated, fixed, grounded in meditation. Uh, surely then these sort of standard, uh, standing sort of pretzel poses, surely they're more of the modern world, are they not? So this is another part of my, my research. So, so my, my main dissertation project, as I, as I mentioned, is this um, textually based project on the Shiva Yoga Pradipika. But my larger interest in the history of yoga uh, and certain influences uh, and, and training that I received at Harvard. I was very fortunate to take a course, a graduate seminar, a couple actually, um, with Professor Gina Kim in the Art History and Architecture Department at Harvard. And this, these courses in Indian art history really opened up something in me, and I was able to use this you know, very amateur, rudimentary training in art history. I, I, you know, I'm not an art historian. Uh, I'm really trained in religious studies and Sanskrit. But these courses opened up for me a different way of viewing and accessing yoga's past. And I kind of used those courses to test out, you know, trying to bring in visual and material culture um, into the forefront of my gaze. and. Through those courses and then through actually, so one of the courses was a a deep dive 
into the history and architecture of the rock cave temples in the Deccan. And at Harvard, we were fortunate enough uh, to receive funding uh, to then take a field trip with uh, our graduate seminar and some professors in the department. And so after studying for an entire semester and reading all of the extant literature on these sites, you know, Ajanta and Alora, and then we made our way down to these um, early um, uh, Pallava, oh, yeah, the, the Badami and Patadakal uh, sites in northern Karnataka. Um, this was an incredible experience to kind of um, not only read all of this uh, research and material, but then to kind of get to go do some field work. And I used that course and seminar as an opportunity to continue on and go down to Hampi, the medieval capital of the Vijayanagara Empire. And I had received some leads, some tips from a yoga teacher who had been traveling and at Hampi, and he had seen some very interesting, as you say, pretzel-shaped yogis carved onto the pillars at Hampi. And so I had done, you know, as much preliminary research on these as I could without actually going. But then through the extension of this uh, field seminar through Harvard, I then went and spent two weeks conducting field work at Hampi. And what I found, Raj, really blew my mind. Uh, I had received a few tips, you know, from this teacher of a few images here and there. But after two weeks of touring through all of the ruined uh, and magnificent temple complexes at Hampi, I found dozens and dozens of carvings of highly complex yogis in very, very dynamic and advanced uh, yogic postures. And so I ended up developing this into my seminar paper, and then this became a uh, much further project and peer-reviewed article that was published in 2018 for the Journal of Yoga Studies. And what I, what I wrote up in, in that article and what I found is that the visual and sculptural record, actually, it anticipates what we find in the texts by at least 100 or 200, sometimes more, uh, years. And so it's become increasingly important to me to try to read the text alongside the visual and material record to flesh out the fullest and most complete history. When it comes to the history of asana, based on this material record, as well as, I should, I sh I, I should absolutely mention, new unpublished Sanskrit uh, manuscripts that have come out in the last decade, in particular through the Hatha Yoga Project uh, and scholars like James Mallinson and Jason Birch. Jason Birch in particular has found a number of manuscripts from the 16th and 17th century and onwards that teach over 84 asanas and increasingly complex and dynamic asanas. So if you had asked me this question even five years ago, I might have said something very different than what I would answer today, which is that more and more of the complex postures that you see today in a standard yoga class or on Instagram or anywhere in the world might have come from some other influence outside of India. 
and that was just simply due to an absence of known available evidence. But over the last really five years or, or even less, we've, we've amassed quite a bit more of both visual and textual evidence that suggests by at least the 15th and certainly 16th century, perhaps first in stone and then in text, more and more very complex, dynamic, balancing, inverting asanas were already being recorded and well-known by authors and artisans, in, particularly in South India. So I asked the question uh, partially in jest because, of course, I had looked at Seth's article um, about uh, really the, 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 the fact that pretzel poses, quote-unquote, are, are, are an ancient phenomenon. Isn't this interesting that, let's just say, one, uh, or researching this um, in the last century, and one was interviewing uh, one of the great yoga masters that had come from India, and that master probably would have said, these poses are ancient. I've learned them from my teacher. These have been going on for centuries. Some say centuries, some say millennia. You know, isn't it interesting that now through textual um, uh, and material culture, uh, we can verify that much of this is older than we thought? That doesn't mean to say that we can take at face value. Um, that historically, the extent the what uh, what one may present their tradition as, obviously, I do find that quite interesting. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I, I think we still have to be careful there, though, right? Because there is a tendency within you know quote unquote traditional uh, yoga or spiritual communities to wave this flag of antiquity uh, as a sign of authenticity, right? And these constant refrains that. You know, this yoga is ancient, it's eternal, it goes back to the Vedas, and so on and so forth, which, frankly, modern scholarship has, you know, largely debunked. It's, it's, it's more complicated, and it's, frankly, more, more interesting than that. Um, some of these postures, just to use the, the lens of asana here, have an older and more ancient history, especially the more seated meditation postures. Uh, so, you know, one of our earliest lists of postures is actually in the Bhashya, the commentary to the Yoga Sutra. And um, there's some debate about the authorship of, of the Bhashya, but it, it was probably, given the content in the Bhashya, uh, we can say written uh, between the 4th and the 5th century of the Common Era. So 1,500 years ago, you have a list of 12 seated asanas, uh, most of them named after uh, flowers like lotus, uh, or even animals, uh, the elephant's pose or camel pose. Now, these are the ways in which those animals sit, not the ways in which they they stand or move. Um, and so, you, you know, we have this pretty ancient uh, tradition of, of seated postures, but it really isn't till the turn of the second millennium CE that we start to see the development of these more complex and dynamic postures, especially framed as asanas and within the traditions of Hatha Yoga. Now, those texts, though, that start to emerge around that time, they'll say the same thing as your um, the, the, the um, archetypal yoga master you just invoked. 
the Viveka Martanda, for example, probably 13th century uh, yoga text, says that there are as many yoga postures as there are living beings. And only Shiva, only Maheshvara, truly knows them all. And then it goes on and says, but of all those infinite asanas, there are 84 that are really important. And of those 84, I'm just going to teach you two. And can you guess what those two postures are? They're probably seated, Seth. Yes. Padmasana, the lotus pose, and Siddhasana, another cross-legged seated pose, the, the adepts pose. So, and you see this in quite a bit of texts from that time. They sort of invoke this idea that there's an infinite amount of postures, that they're divinely revealed, they're eternal, they come from, from Shiva, as it were, or Vishnu, if it's a Vaishnava text. Uh, although I don't think I've actually seen uh, that particular claim. Uh, but then they end up teaching relatively f- few. And it's really not until the Hatha Pradipika in the 15th century where we see 15 asanas taught and more complex non-seated asanas that are taught in, in Hatha yoga. So you get the, the balancing bird postures, kukutasana, the rooster pose, and mayurasana, the peacock pose. And then there's a kind of gap, I would say, in the textual record. And it's all of a sudden in the sculptural material record that these things start to really emerge. And then the texts start to elaborate further in, in the 16th and 17th century after that. So it's a really interesting and complex history. And there's, there's not exactly neat, continuous lines of practice and tradition that we can draw from what's going on today back to directly to these pre-modern traditions. As with anything, I think there's a, there's a constant dance of tradition and innovation. Very well put. Uh, that's sort of the way I think of the Puranas as well, and I think most things in culture. Um, so, and and it's not sort of lost on anyone that knows the etymology that asana comes from the root to sit, right? Mm. Like an asana, is, it, it 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 implies a seated posture by its very name. Um, how did you get interested in this? What you know? How tell us about your journey towards this field of study. I think like a lot of people in yoga studies, probably comes as no surprise that uh, I have been a long-term yoga practitioner, uh, meditator. Um, I taught yoga for, for a number of years. Um, and so it was through my own sort of personal experiences and experiments in practice and then discovering religious studies as an undergrad that kind of illuminated and, and lit a flame intellectually in me where I realized, wow, I could actually do this sort of professionally. I could, I could just study these traditions, these texts and these histories. Uh, and I really just, I fell in love with India. I fell in love with um, the study of Indian philosophy, uh, the history and texts of not only yoga, but of the great Hindu and Buddhist traditions as well. I had some very inspiring and empowering um, mentor professors as an undergrad um, who kind of opened my eyes to this world of academia, um, but also who, who did come from a place of practice themselves. And they encouraged us to go to India, but to do it in a very 
savvy and critical way. Uh, I was kind of early introduced to post-colonial studies and the sort of pizza effect, if you will, in religious studies of these kind of cross-cultural feedback loops and how sometimes our own projections overly romanticize what we want these traditions to be. And um, I think it, it really just grew from there. After undergrad, I went to India and I spent a lot of time there and more and more questions just continued to mount. And I realized I really wanted to learn Sanskrit and get formal training in that. So that led me to go on to grad school. And um, once I made that decision, I knew I would go on to the PhD. And so that kind of has continued to, to fuel and power me uh, till now. Um, so, so it was definitely my own um, practice and teaching in the yoga world. Um, and then, then getting immersed and formally trained in academia and um, Sanskrit language. One of the themes that, have, that has come up here and there on this podcast, though it's probably a theme that I'd love to explore more deeply elsewhere, who knows where, who knows when, who knows how, is the theme of the tension between practice and the study. Uh, there are a great many um, scholar practitioners, uh, for lack of a better term, who are capable of doing both well, as far as I can see. Um, one runs the risk, I think, of sort of, you know, the, the vision out of your right eye being predominant or the vision out of your left eye being predominant and then sort of having to focus your vision through both eyes uh, when you're examining what you're examining. Um, but you know, you're uniquely poised, I think, at least in terms of guests on this podcast, to tell us a little bit more uh, about that tension, if you will, for you, uh, uh, in terms of, um, uh, you know, what does practice mean to you, you know, and 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 how does your scholarship um, uh, support, thwart, I don't want to put words in your mouth, what is the relationship between these two uh, aspects? Yeah, this is a really uh, important topic, something I think about, and I think that more conversations should be had around. It's certainly not a new tension or problem, right, within the fields that we operate in. It's probably always been there since the birth of religious studies and area studies and these, these disciplines in the academy uh, in some form or another. And I think from where I sit, it has kind of a particular valence uh, within yoga studies that's perhaps a little bit different than, say, quote-unquote Hindu studies or Buddhist studies or um, maybe to a lesser degree, Jaina studies and so forth. Uh, because what does it mean to practice yoga in the modern world today? I think is very a different question than certain identity questions of what you know, what does it mean to be a practicing Hindu or a practicing Jew or something like that? Be, and and what I mean by that is, you know, from for myself uh, included, um, you know, I I don't have diksha or initiation into a particular lineage or sampradaya that shapes my particular religious or yoga community identity. And I think there's a lot of pros and cons to that you know, personally, but it allows me to move in and out above and around different communities without any particular ties, you know, and doctrinal or faith commitment to only a single one. 
So I think for myself, it makes it in some ways quite a bit easier to navigate because those boundaries around practice, tradition, and identity are much more fluid. So what does it mean, you know, to be a scholar practitioner or a practitioner scholar? And I think there's a lot of room in between, you know, those two uh, poles, if you will. Uh, I think is, is highly personal, is really context specific. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of different ways that that can manifest and look in terms of the academic and scholarly work that one is doing. You know, whether one is taking a more theological or confession, confessional approach, let's say, to their work. You know, at Harvard, um, the study of religion and South Asian religions is kind of um, placed between what I would say Indian and area studies on the one hand, and then also the divinity school and more theological studies on the other. And so the, the doctoral or graduate student at Harvard working on these traditions can kind of stake out their methodological approach depending on who they're going to work with and what they're going to work on. And so Harvard, I think, is actually a unique example of people doing you know, all, all kinds of different work from much more kind of traditional um, historical, you know, textual critical work, um, you know, theoretically engaged work, uh, and at the same time, uh, and, and uh, not separate from, but also people who are uh, theologians and who really are engaging very um, explicitly within a particular uh, faith or tradition. And I think yoga studies, as it continues to grow, I think is going to see more and more of people working in different pockets and different positions within these, these poles. And I think more robust and critical conversations should be had around this topic um, to try to ensure that regardless of, you know, where one's coming from, that positionality is kind of being laid out clearly. Um, but I think it really depends on what one's goals are in terms of producing scholarship and what that scholarship is supposed to look like, what it's supposed to do, who the audience and readership of that work is, right? Uh, and the same goes for education. Well, it's um, it, that's the other big word that's in my brain a lot, sort of the education, how education works. Um, I've had a variety of experiences uh, with undergrads, with private students, with continuing study students um, that center upon uh, how do we teach religion, you know, in, in a Western uh, secular context, right? Not in a confessional uh, context. How do we teach religion? What, what are folks looking for when they come to an intro, um, uh, a world religion class, for example? Uh, are they satisfied? Are they looking for more? And th this this idea of how we teach, really, for me, in my personal in, in my personal experiences, I mean, in my personal professional experiences, I should say, um, the idea of, of of how we teach impinges upon this tension between whether we are um, teaching music theory or or whether we get to hear music, whether there's a sense of practice or it's all theoretical. 
um, whether, uh, you know, we're learning from a master chef or a nutritionist, right? And this tension comes up a lot uh, everywhere. And anytime um, religion is involved in any way, shape, or form, no matter the context, there's this tension of uh, students coming. Uh, obviously, there are people who may misguidedly think that they will get a spiritual initiation in a religion class. Um, but there are a lot of very sensible people who really want a taste of a tradition and an understanding. And they understand that they're sort of um, uh, looking at the food behind a glass wall type thing. <laughs> they're not able to smell it or taste it. And, and there's, that, there's that tension. So education comes up a lot, especially these days for me, because if I can share a little bit, what I want to ask you about really is yogic studies, uh, because there's a parallel in my own life. Um, but uh, what I'll say right now is that I've, um, I started uh, teaching online three years ago, and it's, it's really taken off uh, in different areas. I ended up doing a presentation at the American Academy of Religion about online education, I think, in 2017. And now in the, this COVID age of ours, like all my worlds are colliding. I used to have the online education crowd and then I'd have the academic crowd. And now it's like, I don't know who to forward what to because um, hmm. people are all online. Uh, there are content creators in our midst who are scholars and that content is very useful for courses. There are um, seasoned academics creating online courses and that content is now publicly accessible. Hmm. The boundaries are blurred uh, in, in, in a way where um, I know it's important to find a path forward, particularly with my current post um, teaching online uh, with Oxford. Uh, but at the same time, the, it's it's in my brain day in and day out how to teach, what to teach, how to teach online. Uh, the the intersection of like entrepreneurship and and the academy, and I think just I just want to share some of that as a backdrop to asking you, what the heck is yogic studies, and mm. how did it come about? Mm. Yeah, so th those topics and, uh, and questions are really kind of at the heart of what I've been doing uh, for the last two years now um, with Yogic Studies. So Yogic Studies is, a, is an online-based uh, educational platform that provides uh, extremely high-quality and evidence-based uh, training and courses in the history and philosophies of yoga. Um, in Indian and South Asian religious traditions, and in, now in classical Sanskrit language. And so we've slowly, slowly been developing a, I think, a really robust university-level curriculum that is open and accessible to anyone in the world. And, you know, yogic studies started in January 2018, and I have to admit, very begrudgingly, like I, I really didn't want to do it. Um, uh, I didn't want to go online. I didn't want to be an online public figure. I didn't want to engage in those what are sometimes pretty vicious, and, uh, I think quite nasty online social media debates. Uh, and I, I was quite afraid, honestly, to put myself out there like that, to put my, my face, my teachings um, uh, in such a public and transparent way as, as something like the internet is. But the reality, Raj, is that um, 
once I became ABD at Harvard and I, you know, finished all my, my coursework and exams and teaching and got my prospectus in, uh, my wife, Charlotte, uh, had some health complications and we really needed to come back home uh, and be near her family in Northern California, where we live now. We have two young children who are three and six now. And we needed to come home. We needed to regroup uh, after four years in Cambridge and surviving winters at Harvard. And um, we needed to get some help uh, with childcare, you know, having grandparents nearby. If anybody uh, is listening who has kids, especially if you're a grad student or in academia, I'm sure you can appreciate that. And the reality was when I left Harvard in Cambridge, I left my meager, uh, uh, teaching stipend on the table, and I'm the sole income provider for for my family. So I had to hustle. I had to figure out a way right away to get some income coming in. And I'd already been, you know, just kind of privately on the side teaching workshops or giving lectures here and there at yoga studios over the years. That's kind of something I've just always really enjoyed and done at an organic and just invitational level with um, friends and studio owners, you know, in the yoga world. And so I decided to lean into that more heavily and really take these years and years of training and research on these topics and to try to package that, to try to present that in particular to yoga teachers and yoga teacher trainees who are looking for better and higher quality education around these topics. So I, I started developing in-person workshops first. And then people started saying to me, you know, are you going to do an online class? When are you going to go online? You should really do an online class. And I, and I really honestly resisted it for as long as I could. And just financial um, pressures, you know, uh, and the reality of our new situation forced me to just give it a try. Um, I'm fortunate I, I have a bit of background in tech and in video editing. Um, I worked actually at Harvard as a part-time job as an advanced technology consultant. And one of my jobs at Harvard was to set up online course websites for faculty across Harvard, which was also just an amazing and interesting way to meet a diverse faculty body at Harvard. Um, and so... I kind of have a unique skill set in that way. I have a background in web design and, and tech and online course development. And so I kind of had the skills in place to be able to what I thought, you know, was to launch a decent online course. And so in 2018, I put together a six-week course, an introduction to the history and philosophy of yoga. And I just put it out on Facebook and I thought, hey, if I can get 10 people to sign up for this course, you know, that will be worth my while and you know, can get a little bit of income in. And I was so blown away by the response. Uh, it got shared hundreds of times on social media. And um, it was really well received and supported by my academic colleagues as well, which was sort of a fear and anxiety I had of putting myself out there this way. And we got over 100 people. Uh, who signed up for that very first course. And so I realized uh, I was really onto something here. Uh, and then the experience of teaching it also just turned out to be fantastic. 
I really kind of underestimated what it would look like and what it would feel like to teach online. I had kind of naively assumed the people who would sign up for it are friends and, and, and people I already knew in, in California and in the States. But of course, as you know, when you go online, geographies melt away and it really opens it up to this global and international student base. So we've now had, you know, over 2,000 students take courses with us from over 30 countries. And what that's done is create this incredibly rich and vibrant international community. And so in any one of our online courses, we have this really interesting and dynamic group of students and students who are from, you know, all walks of life, most of whom come from yoga backgrounds, many of whom are teachers, um, most of which are practitioners, but also just, just, you know, people who are just genuinely interested in Indian history or philosophy or want to have always wanted to learn a classical language like Sanskrit. And so it's turned out to be just this remarkable community of human beings from around the world who are not being forced to be there for academic credit, but who are opting in and genuinely want to learn about these topics. And so it's created a really fun and dynamic virtual learning environment for, for me and then now others as I've been bringing on more and more esteemed colleagues and faculty um, to teach. Uh, we've really created this, this rich online uh, learning community. Oh, that's incredible. Um, uh, there's two sort of, um, yeah, I sort of thinking images, but there, there's two sort of bundles of, of, of impressions that come to mind. One pertains to uh, the niche, the need. And the second pertains to um, my own personal experience and the parts of self I recognize in your story. Uh, if I may, I'll share on both of them. Um, uh, it, it strikes me f as an observer of uh, human beings, <laughs> which I've always done, even when I was a child. I just love watching people, interviewing people. I can't help myself. If I knew you can get academic credit for it, I would have been an ethnographer for sure. Um, but it's clear to me that we need a number of things are converging. The academy needs to figure out how to innovate and retain the interest of learners for its own um, um, thriving, perhaps even survival of some programs. Two, COVID. Do mm -hmm. the math. Um, it's blowing my mind that right now my my academic wheelings and dealings and my online wheelings and dealings are all in the same inbox, and they've never been really in the same inbox before. Mm. Um, what you're doing at Yogic Studies, from what I can tell, my cursory glance, and speaking with you a couple of times and having interviewed, for example, Antonia uh, Ruppel, who does your Sanskrit courses now, is that you're fulfilling a need that we have both as a culture and as scholars at the academy. It's not for everyone right now, but folks like you and I sort of have to forge a path forward. In my view, part of what I, part of what I wanted to do is share what I learned to other uh, grad students who might be interested in similar innovation uh, or entrepreneurship in the in the broadest sense, and that's why I did that AAR uh, roundtable 
But for me, I was sort of, um, oh, I had a, do you mind if I share a bit of my story? Sure. Yeah, please. Yeah. I have, a, I have had a fairly, uh, one could say, circuitous path. <laughs> lots and lots of pieces. Um, school sort of interrupted by all kinds of posts and jobs and private sector work. But um, by around 30, I, I finished my master's. I, I did part of a, a, a bachelor, worked, did the other half of my bachelor, discovered religious studies, basically then majored in that, did a master's half time over three years while I worked. And then at about the age of 30, I was sort of harnessing my expertise, both my parampara training and my academic training and giving talks in yoga studios throughout Toronto. <laughs> so I was speaking to, 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 to YTTs. Many of the owners were also um, students, formally and informally, of my teacher, who's no longer with us. But I was giving talks throughout the city to try and bring some of the the rigor, the history, the 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 the, the, the narrative, right, the, the the mythological soil, you know, from which um, yoga draws, and you know, I did that for a few years, and things were kind of taking off, and then I decided to go and do a PhD. <laughs> uh, so for me, it was like, okay, I found this this the really brilliant scholar who was at the University of Calgary, and I knew for whatever reason at the time I wanted to stay in Canada and. And uh, I realize now that you and I are sort of related to, to the the academic parampara. At least uh, I would joke that I, I was getting a Harvard education at Calgary because my advisor, uh, the the brilliant uh, Beth Rollman, she was a student of Anne Monius when Anne was at um, UVA before she ended up going to mm. oh, Oxford. Lovely. And if I'm not mistaken, that must have been your advisor when you uh, when you started, correct? Yeah, yeah, Anne. Um... Uh, has been my advisor, had been my advisor uh, up until her uh, untimely death, um, gosh, mm. just about a year ago now, which is um, just kind of insane, hard to believe. Hard to believe indeed. But anyhow, I went to Calgary, uh, sort of did everything I could to sort of uh, demonstrate and, and, and enhance my ability as a researcher and teacher and be competitive and did the degree in record time. And then I was like an ascetic with a laptop uh, desktop actually just dissertating because I just needed the ticket to get out of there. You know, mm-hmm. I was already, you know, mid thirties by then. And, um, I came out, I defended and the job market was wretched. I was shortlisted for a couple of jobs. Uh, one I was offered, but it didn't feel right. And then once the political landscape shifted in the U S I, I saw why my intuition was saying, no, don't go. Um, but I rang in 2016 uh, having maxed out credit cards uh, with four cents to my name, literally mm. four pennies. And I had this kind of, uh, <laughs> I'll use like an archetypal image, the Scarlett O'Hara moment where it's like, I will not be hungry again. You know, I don't know if you know the movie, but it's like, uh, this is not happening. I don't know what where I aired, uh, but I've got uh, work ethic training. I'm in uh, Toronto, which has a number of opportunities and nothing's working out. No networking's working out. No teaching jobs, nothing's working out. So I said, you know what? I used to give these uh, seminars and courses before the PhD. Let me try one. I sent an email out. Within a day, I had enough people sign up that I could pay my bills for the month. I'm like, okay, I see. Okay, I need to do this. So then I embraced sort of entrepreneurship as uh, out of necessity, similar to as you say. And then about a year later, 2017, I got the push to go online. And I fully, fully relate to being 
forced out of sheer necessity and also being uh, on some level terrified or um, um, uh, imbued with shame or this kind of like, what kind of academic are you? And, you know, I'm not going to speak for you, but I I suspect there's some similarities there. Mm. And then you have the more forward thinking and or gracious academics congratulating you for these interesting things you're doing with your life. And now COVID-19, that's all I need to say. They're all now it's like, okay, can you help me set up an online course? <laughs> and we yeah. come full circle. It's, it's yeah. so interesting. Uh, so well, you're working. Thanks you're for working. sharing that. It, do, you, do you mind if I respond to a few things there? Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a number of really important points that you bring up in your narrative and your story. Your story, which unfortunately is probably not terribly unique across graduate students in the humanities. Um, I think there there really is a sort of vow of poverty we take as grad students. <laughs> uh, I, I honestly, I mean, I, I've always looked at it as a certain form of asceticism or tapasya. And while... It's, it's from think, Acharya, right? Sure, for some of us. <laughs> I mean, a phase in your life where you, I don't mean necessarily, I mean, a phase in your life where you, you know, you don't earn. Uh, uh, my, my teacher had a saying, you know, earning and learning don't go together usually. <laughs> well, here's the thing about Brahmacharya and why that model can work in a very ideal state and why this Brahmacharya model, it really is a model for a young single person, which is the grad student model. You know, you're going to you get into a PhD program and and you're lucky enough to get funding, you're going to receive a stipend. And depending on what city uh, your program is in, that stipend may or may not um, qualify you to pay for your rent and food and books. And, you know, it's going to be the very bare minimum that you need. And that can can work if you're a single brahmacharya. But if you are a married householder, if you have kids, you're going to need to provide in other ways. And so this became a real challenge and became immediately apparent to me when I had, you know, when we had our first child in my first year of the MA program. Because going into academia and pursuing a PhD in religious studies and South Asian studies uh, and having no qualms about, you know, any economic ramifications of this or, you know, not, not caring about, you know, the finances and those ramifications of a career, which often you go into and you need the passion and vairagya and eka grata and focus to, to get into a program like this. But I've found that, you know, those values and those things can change over the long run of what it takes to do a PhD, especially in North America, right? And so I think you're right in that we really have a major problem in the academy right now where we all have our eyes and we're being trained and ingrained with this sort of tenure track or bust mentality. And that may have worked in the past when there was enough jobs to go around. But I think, and now this is all just being more... uh, uh, exaggerated and brought to the fore by COVID and this pandemic, right? Where this job market is now even in more influx. But I just have so many dear friends and talented, brilliant colleagues who are not getting jobs in these in in our fields and who are bouncing from um, adjunct to adjunct, 
from city and even country to country. And it's not sustainable. And especially if you have a family, if you have kids, and having to uproot everyone again and again. So it's a problem that I you know, became aware of early in my graduate training. And I think that was um, made even more, more clear to me because I, maybe, maybe because I had kids early on. So I was thinking about those things and what I wanted out of all of this. Um, and so I do think we have to take away, and it's happening, taking, you know, these, these boundaries are becoming more porous, as you say, but we still have a long way to go in thinking more creatively as, you know, as, as, as disciplines and fields of what kind of careers, you know, are, are available and what we can do with this unique skill set and training and passion for research and knowledge. I think there really are a variety of non-traditional teaching and research um, spheres that one can in, enter into if they can think a little bit more creatively and like you said, it's not for everybody. You know, this type of work, you do have to be able to put yourself out there publicly in a particular way if you're going to go online, let us say. Um, but I honestly think going online and in the private sector, even if it's just one course here or there, is honestly is something that anybody who's a specialist and has this niche knowledge in a particular field, which is to say any PhD, student or you know um or professor um if there's a community of people who are interested in that topic i do think there is a way to 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 share that and i think as you said earlier there's benefit on both sides for the for the academic to be able to highlight and share their research with a broader public of non-specialists sometimes and for the public to be able to access and to to learn from and to receive this this research and 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 knowledge, um, that's oftentimes really right on the cutting edge of a particular discipline or field. Well, you, there's there's so many things. There. I mean, um, just so the listeners know, I've literally had one conversation with Seth maybe a month or two ago, um, and I we spoke uh, because someone said you should. You should, you should look up Seth Powell at Yogic Studies. It's someone who knew me from the days when I was giving, uh, basically doing what Seth is doing now, but in person in yoga studios in Toronto. And I, I looked him up and, and and here we are. But, you know, as we're speaking, there's so many parallels. The, 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 the idea, the very powerful, liberating, but terrifying idea that anybody with expertise can monetize that expertise for the sake of their survival simply by teaching a course online. That was essentially, that idea was the takeaway from the talk that I did in 2017, the graduate student roundtable at the AR. Um, that, well, that, that, it was like, you can do this. This is possible. In the course of one year, I went from like knowing nothing about this, not great with tech at all, to I now have an online school called Power of Myth. You can do this too. You may well need to do this. That was sort of the takeaway. I think we're just ahead of the curve. I think that there are a lot of bright people who I don't know what it'll look like, but I just think that in half a generation's time, there'll be so many more people doing um, something similar to what we're doing in terms of harnessing their expertise for a greater public audience, or even the, the, the boundaries are blurred, as I say. You may have undergrads taking uh, a yoga studies course for enrichment. Uh, um, you may have um, a scholar, a scholar of whatever, 
whatever text, whatever area, the Upanishads, the epics, doing a brilliant podcast for public consumption that can then be a tool used uh, for academic courses. The boundaries are blurred. We're just uh, a fair bit ahead of the curve. I agree with you that uh, something needs to be done about brilliant, hardworking, dedicated people who um, th- there are no jobs at the academy and then they're ruled out beyond the academy because they're quote unquote overqualified, right? And there's something I think is creating spaces. And if people can't, you know, I had an online school, but it was just me for the most part teaching at it. I dissolved that, focus more on the consulting for a while. And now I'm teaching in Oxford and it's sort of like, it's all kind of coming together now. But I think that people like yourself and various subfields for them, for the ones who have the courage, have a, some of the skill or are willing to get the skill to create spaces where others can teach. You know, if I was, you know, you know, and someone like Antonia, for example, or whomever, I'm choosing her because I know her because we get an interview, she can show up to your school and, you know, the, 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 the structure is in place, right? Mm-hmm. The marketing is in place, the branding is in place. And she could do what she loves to do, what she's been training to do forever. And then she could walk away and be able to sustain herself. And there's a whole bunch of people who now are inspired and 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 fed by her Sanskrit instruction. And yeah. I just think we're kind of creating those spaces for people. Yeah, and that was that was kind of the phase two of yogic studies is once our community started to grow and interest in these courses uh, continued to develop, I realized well, this is an opportunity to bring on other scholars, other colleagues uh, with, with specialization, you know, other than my own, and to create special topics, courses and seminars. And I really, really wanted at the, at the core of what I wanted to do and envisioning a broad and comprehensive curriculum for yoga studies, really wanted language training, in particular classical Sanskrit, to, to be at the heart of that. I wanted that to be online and available and accessible. So I really lucked out, Raj. Um, as you as you mentioned a couple times, I, I've been fortunate to team up with a fantastic and brilliant Sanskrit teacher, uh, Dr. Antonia Rupo, the author of the Cambridge Introduction to Sanskrit. And, you know, we actually met just through some email exchanges on the Indology listserv. It's amazing. <laughs> What what a resource uh, those list serves are for our field, mm-hmm. and um, you know I had never met or interacted with Antonia, just seen her online, but I had her book, and I knew whoever I got to teach these Sanskrit courses, I wanted them to use her book because um, for our listeners, you know if if you've if you've seen it or maybe you, you have it, um, I think it's really one of the best primers and introductions. Uh, to the Sanskrit language um, that's now available. And I think it's it's just written in a really clear and very precise and structured way that is an excellent guide for, for a new student of the language who doesn't, let's say, come from the classics background, hasn't studied Latin and Greek or, or other languages. So I was really impressed with her book and thought, well, gosh, if, if she would teach it herself, that would just be incredible. And to my surprise, she... Uh, responded uh, with great enthusiasm and we immediately um, hit it off and developed now what is a um, full nine-month online program in elementary Sanskrit spread over three 12-week terms. 
we're now in I think week eight of our first 12-week term. And gosh, we have over 200 people in that course from all over the world. And this is something I'm, I'm tremendously proud of, honestly, um, to be able to create and host really world-class Sanskrit language training online and for people to be able to access that, not simply at Cambridge University or Harvard or Oxford or the University of Toronto, but from anywhere in the world, um, you know, regardless um, of your academic credentials. And the response has been really powerful and the students are making amazing progress. It's, it's really incredible to see. Uh, it's something I wish I had available when I was starting out learning that, Sanskrit. That's, that's exactly one of the things I was going to say when I when I want to let you finish your thought is that it's a what what that's what the, the it struck me as a wish list of uh, you know uh, it's like what would I what did I wish my intro Sanskrit book was like that's how she structured her book. Yeah, and not only and that's how she teaches as well. She's a really great teacher who really takes teaching and pedagogy to heart. Um, and so I couldn't have found a better instructor um, and somebody who's also deeply interested in online pedagogy and online learning. Um, and so it's just been a great fit uh, in, in so many ways. I had the same experience when I came across her text. I had her on the program. I think it might have been over a year ago, about a year ago. We talked about her book. And then I had her back on a second time. I think there have been a handful of people that have come back. Obviously, there's no limit. Uh, you know, I'll have people on as many times as they have, they have something they want to uh, share with us. But I had her back on because I think it was the cusp of her starting her first course that week. And I thought, I have to put this on people's radar. I don't, I've never studied with her. But, you know, my degrees say I know religion, but really it's people. It's people that I know. It's people that I love. And religion is a great way to understand people. But I, I suspected that she was an excellent teacher to the point of sending people in my field who are looking for sense of training because I don't have a course currently. I don't have the time to tutor. I send them to her. I was sending them to her where she was teaching online before. And now I'm sending them to her at Yogic Studies. And it's not because, uh, for the record, this is not a paid advertisement. <laughs> this is literally just seva to the people who are passionate about learning these things in a proper way. And this is this is about just community, right? And impact, right? Um, and that's why I think it's, it's really fascinating what you're doing there. Yeah. And so the other thing I wanted to say about that is I've had this great pleasure then to get to build this team of, of faculty for yogic studies and invite fantastic colleagues onto the platform to to teach a four-week or a six-week course to share their expertise and for them to be financially rewarded for for that you know for that teaching and i think a very very fair very very decent rate um and there's something I like about this model where, you know, not all, but a lot of our students and community um, are yoga teachers and practitioners. And this is a community that is very, very deeply interested in the history and deeper philosophical dimensions of the yoga traditions, but they don't always have direct access to it. For yoga teachers, they want to be better trained and better educated and knowledgeable about the histories of these traditions and want to say things, pronounce Sanskrit words and asana names correctly, you know, more than ever today. And so there's something nice, I think, about that community, even monetarily supporting 
these scholars. They're directly then supporting, almost like patronizing it's it's um, of, uh, of its research and teaching. It's Mahapunya. <laughs> exactly. As far as I'm concerned. That's right. It's an ancient model. We're just doing it online. <laughs> um, this, this, that niche, uh, you know, uh, in, um, t- between 2005, maybe 2007, 2010, um, in Toronto, sort of the owners and the, the, the quote-unquote yogis, yoga instructors who were really hungry for the depth. Uh, uh, my teacher would give um, satsangs on the Yoga Sutras once or twice a week, on the Bhagavad Gita three times a week. Um, you know, I think I was sitting with five to seven people at any given time doing one-on-one work, just, you know, uh, to pronounce mantras, to understand concepts. And this is all kind of just a way of being. It wasn't until I was crushed in about 2016 that I'm like, oh, maybe people want to pay for this <laughs> so I can survive. And there you go. Um, an entrepreneur was born. But that niche, it was so um, alive then. I imagine it's only grown uh, now that it's 2020. There's probably a lot of people who would just love to to learn about the, tra- the tradition learn about culture, learn Sanskrit, maybe look at Shastra. Certainly I'm meeting tons of fascinating people who want to study Hindu philosophy at the Oxford Center, for example. And you know, Seth, this is not going anywhere, right? Now even the academic courses are going to be online where possible. So um, it's great to have this kind of place where uh, a qualified instructor who is um, a skilled teacher and willing to work a little out of their comfort zone to learn this other medium. I mean, this is a great opportunity. And uh, I don't know about you, but also for me and kind of the stuff that I do. I mean, I worked at a company called Miracy. I did a couple of contracts two years in a row. To They're a company that specializes in helping people, educators, become online educators. And just pushing the envelope on what student engagement can look like. Just sort of um, redefining uh, the impact of online education. That's something that I find exciting as well. And I'm thinking of creative ways to engage people in the online medium. And this is from somebody who doubted the, that online education could be impactful. I went from a, from a skeptic to a, a convert uh, to now you could say a proselytize, you know, like I <laughs> uh, really, and tr- especially coming from a direct lineal transmission background, as well as an academic background, as, as, as well as being an, an old fashioned uh, shake hands, meet and greet kind of guy. Uh, I'm like online education. What are you going to get out of that? You know, go watch a YouTube video. Now it's like, no, you can have a deeply impactful experience pending yeah. the setup. And what I'd also like to, to add for, for any academics or colleagues who, who are listening who, I don't know, might still be a bit skeptical. I want to just emphasize, you know, we really are, our, our approach is very much academic. Uh, I consider these university level courses. All of our faculty are uh you know, uh, for the most part, PhDs and highly esteemed scholars in, in their uh, respective fields. And the approach is it's non-sectarian and evidence-based. And so, you know, we were talking about scholar-practitioner divides, theological or confessional versus more textual historical modes. I would say even in these courses, we really are leaning more towards an objective uh, study of these texts and traditions. And there's particular reasons why I've kind of created some of those boundaries, particularly in the yoga world. 
and and part of that is because a lot of students are 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 actually accustomed to the more theological approach and a sort of top-down approach from their teachers who are just simply saying this is the way it is this is what the text this is what the shastra says this is the history this is where it comes from and it doesn't equip them in a very savvy or critical way with the tools that are actually necessary to read these texts to think through these ideas and traditions in a truly rich and meaningful and honest way. And so one of the things that we're really trying to do is to say, let's step into this mode of learning, put your scholar's cap on for a moment, and let's try to say, if we're reading the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, let's try to get into the text, into the mind of the author. Let's try to understand the text within its own historical place and time. Something that would be very obvious in a religious studies classroom setting but is not the typical mode of learning in a yoga teacher training setting. And what I've found is that for these yogis and yoga teachers, it's incredibly refreshing and inspiring because it's inviting them to really think critically. And they're not just being spoon-fed the answers, but they're being invited into a conversation of research and learning. And as a teacher, we can be, have humility and we can admit this is what we know and this is what we don't know. This is an exciting time in the field of yoga studies. There's incredible scholarship coming out and things that we thought five, 10 years ago, we now know not to be the case and new texts and new um, new materials are emerging. And uh, it's an exciting time to bring people into that learning process and path. And so I see those those kind of values and, and approaches um, really at the heart of what we're doing, both as, as teachers and then inviting students um, into that space as well. You know, I probably just internalized it because I know some of the people and I had a sense of the courses, but to me, it, it very much is an online version of what I do at Continuing Studies at the University of Toronto, face-to-face, in that it is... Um, you know, it's a religious studies classroom that may be populated by practitioners, right? And so I find that it, it is refreshing for them to be able to uh, to critically engage, to ask questions, to use these parts of selves that are, that are so um, developed in the West. Um, so yeah, I just, I mean, I'm glad you clarified for the listeners, but I inferred that it was a space of... Um, sort of rigorous, responsible, intellectual inquiry um, that obviously is populated by people who have a vested interest in the topic that may be beyond that of a scholar. Mm, yeah. That sounded about right. Yeah, and and to be able to approach a text from a variety of perspectives, I think, is not only helpful for reading a text, like, say, the Bhagavad Gita. So uh, last year I taught a course on that, and... You know, we try to place the Gita historically within the epic tradition. How can we understand it within the Mahabharata context as a literary text, but then also as a, as a, as a theological and philosophical text? Let's look at it within the Vedantas, plural, and the numerous commentaries uh, and exegesis of the Gita. And, you know, we'll look at different passages from Shankara to Ramanuja to Madhva, uh, even to Mahatma Gandhi today. And we can see all these different interpretations of the same verses 
from these different theological or philosophical perspectives. And the ability to put all of those perspectives on the same table with the text. Again, I, I mean, I'm preaching to the to the choir of religious studies here. This is so at the heart of what we do and even just kind of a liberal education in the humanities. But to, to do that and offer that broader to the public and to equip people with those critical reading tools, I think is, is, um, is really powerful. And I think people respond to that today in particularly um, very well. Agreed. And I really like the, the invocation of the liberal arts college. You know, once upon a time, I thought that would be my dream job, right? Uh, uh, yeah, probably in America, because that's where there are a great many of them. But sort of like this, this, this university-level, rich liberal arts kind of um, setting. Uh, there may be people who come to your courses who they may have an interest and or experience with yoga, and they may not have the academic training. And they're ironically learning the critical thinking skills here, right? I find that in continuing studies all the time, there's a variety of people that come from a variety of backgrounds. And you're always surprised what they learn and what they take away um, from the experience. But it necessarily enriches them on A, how to think, and B, on some level, way, shape, form, how humans work. I think, um, And ultimately, I think that's probably why people are so fascinated and why there's a huge body of the population that are they're hungry for this stuff they're looking for courses they're looking for good teachers responsible teachers they're looking for you know um uh, some kind of enrichment right some kind of intellectual enrichment yeah i think we're also we're also in an age right now of this abundance of information uh that the internet exposes us to that we're being constantly swarmed with on our social media feeds this 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 rich and abundant content and when it comes to something like the history of yoga or the epics or you know hindu or buddhist texts uh, philosophy there's a real need for specialists right whether those specialists are coming from within a particular faith tradition or uh, providing the perspective of uh, of a scholar there's a real need for expertise and knowledge that one can can trust and can stand by. That's not simply a Wikipedia page entry. Um, and so I think people are also hungry for, you know, knowledge they can trust, let's say. Uh, Quote-unquote authentic credibility. knowledge. Credibility, perhaps. Or authenticity, yeah. Um, definitely. That's great. Is there anything more that you wanted to touch on regarding uh, yogic studies that that um, perhaps I missed? Um, I think the last thing I would just say is to uh, just share with folks about uh, our new podcast, if you don't mind, uh, the Yogic Studies podcast. Yes, that actually was exactly where I was going after the actual uh, uh, institution. So please tell us about. So Seth, I hear you're start, you started a Yogic Studies podcast. What's that all about? I did. And what better place to talk about a podcast than on, on your podcast? So this is really fun. Oh, oh man. And this, this whole thing has been really fun because I've been on, the, on, on your end for the past couple months interviewing and, and having conversations with scholars. And so it's actually quite fun to have the tables turned and um, to have you leading the show. So, so thanks again for that. But um, yeah, the Yogic Studies podcast, we, um, we've got uh, almost 10 episodes now. And it's just yet another extension of the platform of trying to, you know, 
everything we've been talking about today, trying to bridge the academic and more public communities, trying to share this exciting research uh, with the broader yoga public, but uh, as with a podcast, as with the internet, to, to frankly, anybody who's interested. And uh, the idea is pretty simple, not unlike this podcast, uh, to bring on scholars and experts in the field and to interview them uh, about their work. Um, one thing that I've been doing and having a lot of fun with on the podcast is, is also to have the scholars share a little bit about their stories and their biography, sometimes perhaps even a little bit more than they're comfortable or used to doing in the more traditional academic setting. But I think our stories and biographies are, are quite interesting. You know, if you you're at the AAR or the World Sanskrit Conference or the AAS. You get all these people together from around the world who are all studying Sanskrit and Hindi and Tamil and all of these languages and traditions. Pretty interesting group of people with some fantastic stories and experiences behind them. So part of the podcast is also to highlight those stories, those journeys, to get more insight into you know, who these scholars are, how do we come to the subjects that we, that we study and love and are passionate about, but then really to, to highlight the work that they're doing um, and to, to create an open dialogue and conversation and, and to share that, you know, with the public. That, um, that sounds fantastic. Um, it, you do get a sense of more of the person behind the scholarship. I've listened to two episodes, um, love them. Uh, I've, I, I couldn't well have you come here and talk about your podcast that I was ignorant of. It's fantastic because you get a sense of person behind. Uh, it's similar to this in that you have interesting, nerdy, scholarly, uh, or big picture questions. Um, I obviously quite enjoy this the podcast that I do for New Books Network here. Uh, by the same token, I'm limited in terms of we're looking at a work and that the main objective is to put some main themes on your radar so that you can um, vet it for interest or learn about the world or consider it for teaching or research. And I'm just sort of, the, it's just the appetizer where you, you often get the sense that we're just getting started and we can go for a couple more hours. But mm-hmm. with Seth's podcast, you can really get a sense of the person behind the book, if they're even talking about a book at all, and the journey. And that's, you know... I, <laughs> maybe a, a couple of months ago, I hadn't discovered your podcast. <laughs> I was saying to a colleague, I'd love to do a podcast. I love this podcast, but I'd love to do a podcast that that was a little more expansive. Yeah. And uh, she says to me, you know, you, you know, you know what you, you should be, you know, you know what you're meant to be. You need to be the Oprah of Indology. <laughs> there you go. She said, you should go and int- introduce all of your colleagues and ask them about their lives and, and their journey. And, and that, you know, you could do that with your life. Now, I don't think Seth's going quite that far, but I think that niche is now being filled. So thank you very much. Hey, Seth. the title of Oprah of Indology is very much open for the taking, Raj. And, um, and look, I don't think we can have too much of this stuff. Frankly, there's not enough. And I think that's why both of us are doing what we're doing. We saw a need and a niche that could be filled. and you know, I I love I happen to love podcasts and be an avid podcast consumer, and I I've been I had been thinking about doing it for quite a while, and I figured somebody else would come out and do it. I'm you know I didn't have to do it myself, but um, I was really delighted when I discovered your podcast actually because 
frankly, it's really the only thing like that in the field um, that really is carefully, um, you know, going through a, a work or a book of a scholar like that, and and it's right on the cutting edge of new releases of these of these important books that are shaping the field. So you really get the sense of where a field is at if one is to go back and listen to this podcast. So I've appreciated it very much, and um, you know, hoping to do something similar. Um, you know, for, for the field of yoga studies and, and perhaps a, a bit beyond that uh, as well. But by, by all means, uh, start more podcasts, put more <laughs> digital resources, more courses out there. I don't think um, it's not an overcrowded <laughs> market. This is a TMI, but I honestly, for a couple of months in the back of my brain, I've been having this itch to start a podcast. And I'm like, I already have a podcast. What's my problem? And I'm like, no, but this podcast is, is quite narrow and structured. Um, and I, I, I'm rolling around in my, in my brain. Well, well what, is the, what is the horizon? Is it, is it Hindu studies? Is it religion? Is it a podcast about religion? Is it, you know, about everything under the sun? Is it about, you know, random thoughts by Raj Balkaran? Like, what is it about? And I haven't quite found the happy medium between a podcast about the universe and, um, you know, a podcast about, you know, ancient Indian Sanskrit texts. It has to be something in between there. <laughs> I haven't found the happy medium yet. All right. Well, um, maybe maybe we can talk. We can brainstorm off air. We can about, definitely about talk. Um, we'll brainstorm off air. Um, for those of you listening, um, we've been speaking with Seth Powell, who's doing some really interesting research um, on uh, an ancient uh, uh, Veera Shaiva uh, yogic text at Harvard, and uh, more to the point of our, our our podcast today, which is a conversation with Seth Powell. Um, we are um, we've had a chance to hear about his really cutting edge work. I feel in a weird way he's an alternate universe of what I'm doing, but he's probably doing it better, which is great because I can learn from it. Uh, no, <laughs> it's cutting edge work at, at, at yogic studies where he's really redefining um, ways in which um, academics can harness their expertise. Uh, he's participating in the in the in the in the, in the, in the global transformation and, and and eruption of of online education, um, and I think he's he's really on the cutting edge of something very important uh, for how the um, to, uh, for, for ways in which to bridge the ivory tower public divide. So Seth, it's been a, a great pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, for those of you listening out there, by all means, check out Seth's podcasts. We can't have enough podcasts. Uh, uh, <laughs> we'll link it in the description to this podcast and do check out your studies. Um, I have no doubt there'll be a course or two that you'll be interested in. And uh, with luck, you'll be, take it, you'll be able to take it before long. So until next time, uh, stay safe, stay well, and uh, keep listening to podcasts. Take care. All right. Thanks so much, Raj. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs> You're welcome. Take care.